Hey everyone, this is Regan from Better Faster Further, along with my colleague, Adam Odosky. Adam, how are you today? I'm great, Regan, how are you? I'm doing fantastic, man. How is Salida, Colorado treating you these days? Oh man, absolutely beautiful, to be honest. Like now, now is the time from, from a weather perspective. It's like, you know, cool in the 40s and sunny and beautiful and kind of the shoulder season. Yeah. So not many people out and about. It's really awesome right now. Yeah, it is. And colors changing, snow starting to come down, um, you know, infrequently. It's beautiful here in Marin today, sunny day. We've actually been getting some rain, which I am just thrilled about. And um, tell you what, we were just up in Portland and uh, it was really fun and beautiful up there as well. We flew in and um, Mount Hood uh, was uh, totally covered in snow. All the hills up there was a beautiful flight dropping in into the uh, the rivers up there, the Columbia and the Willamette, I think, or the, yeah, I think it's the Willamette, but um, got to spend some time with some buddies and uh, super nice to see them, but it was cold. Portland is like a cold wet right now. Yeah. So for, forgive my ignorance here, but I've, I've actually never spent time in the Northwest in the fall. I've only spent time there in the spring and summer. Does it look like fall like we're used yeah. to seeing fall it does like it's, leaves different. Are coming yeah. it's different than colorado it's like just because just no. the trees are different but you've got all kinds of green and then you've got yellow and red and i don't know exactly what all the what, what you know what the tree scene is there but flying in it was beautiful so you've got okay. this dichotomy of like still some evergreen lush greenery you've yeah. got no capped peaks right outside of portland and then you've got, um, and, and just beautiful kind of scenery. You've got multiple rivers converging right in that area. And then you've got all these color changes. So it was, it's pretty cool. It's a, you know, I, I, I love it up there. It's, you, you got to want it to live there just because it's, you know, colder and wetter and, um, but it's, it's a pretty cool scene. So. Yeah. My coach lives in Seattle area. Cool. And uh, when we, we talked earlier this week and he said, you know, it's, it's full on rainy, gloomy dark and it will be like this for the next six months yeah so seattle is not very far away but it's even yeah it's it's totally that way i mean that's the the, the winters up in those areas portland does get quite a bit of snow like in, in the surrounding areas so you can be snowboarding and stuff like that but that's the other awesome. thing about the the northwest you've got um you know seattle's not far away i mean none of that is very far away so right pretty cool it's awesome cool yeah. man well, welcome back yeah, I love it. Well, hey, this is this is podcast number four. It's actually kind of weird that we committed to doing this not that long ago. We've already got are about to have four under our belt, which is super cool. So, and uh, Adam was a was a big kind of push for this. Our, our first one was you gearing up for the Moab two forty. Number two was kind of uh, the reflections and lessons learned, and just giving you a chance to share your story, which was amazing. Uh, number three was. Um, we brought Louis Selencourt, my co-founder, into the fold. We got a bit of his backstory and just kind of some lessons learned along the way and, and, and how that kind of folds in the business. And, um, you know, this one kind of continues on this theme of just leading through adversity. It's like, you know, all about this performance mindset. It's really around, you know, not only like how to behave in, in times of adversity, but how, like the mindsets associated with that. And so much, as you can attest, to our successes and failures is, is the head game, right? It's, it's the mind game. It's the narrative in, in between our ears that we're telling ourselves. And, um, you know, you've got, we were talking about Navy SEALs and the military and folks like that, but you've got people who are truly mentally tough and have like been through adversity or faced adversity or have trained, you know, for adversity. And then you got people that just get crushed 
by you know the the head games before they even show up for the race before they mm-hmm. even like you know before she even really hits the fan so mm-hmm. i was up in in portland as i said earlier and we were i was reading the news and i mean it's just like I, i'm constantly reminded at the kind of unique and amazing and challenging window of time that we're that we're in right now i mean th- we're, we're currently experiencing a pretty unique moment in human history oh. um yes. a lot of it is a repeat of of you know events wars pandemics that have happened uh, you know previously so i don't want to make it sound like none of this you know this is the first time we've we've seen this rodeo but it's compounded by all these kind of events happening at the same time which i think is is just insane i mean you've got hyperconnectivity across the board which comes with a bunch of you know benefits as well you know global pandemic which is still happening out there you know we kind of act in have moved on, but it's, it's still a very real thing for a lot of people. Totally disrupted supply chains. I mean, I'm doing a huge remodel on my house right now and it has, you know, taken not twice as long, but a lot longer and cost a lot more money because of these crazy supply chains. We've got fully built cars, you know, that are ready to rock that are waiting for, for, for chips that are this big that like can't go yet. Right. We went and we're looking at uh, just we're, we're we're looking at getting a new vehicle and um, trading in our our Chevy Tahoe. It's I love that car, but and we went to a few places to look around and they won't even sell you a car up there unless you're from the area because they have such limited supplies. Like the guy was like, I can't say it. You could come in here with a thing of cash and I can't even sell it to you because we get dinged as a dealership for selling outside of certain zip codes. Wow, and I was just like, that's bonkers, you know? That is insane. Yep. And it's just like, you know, limited inventories. Uh, so that's a supply chains piece, you know, compounded by this slow rolling thunder of this global climate issues, right? So like mm-hmm. you, you can be a climate change denier or you can be a climate change believer, but the reality is the data proves that there are more intense hurricanes, you know, longer, hotter droughts, crazy heat waves, snow falling in places that snow doesn't fall, places drying out that should be wet. Like that's just a reality and, and you know, the rationale behind it all, um, you know, the scientists and, and the research overwhelmingly point to humans playing a central role in that theme. But regardless, the reality is, you know, we're being impacted by all of that in real time because of that and because of a lot of po- politics and because of a lot of lack of resources. We've got mass migration happening all over the world. Um, and then you've got these like multiple wars happening and all these crazy political shifts. And even in the U.S., it's felt right now. I mean, today is November 10th. We just wrapped up these midterm elections and like things are still trickling out around who's got the House and who's got the Senate and all this stuff. It's pretty wild. But the point is, like, all of that applies pressure and the world is increasingly connected and dynamic. And then like businesses just have to be dynamic and responsive. If you think you have it figured out. And like you've got your algorithm or your systems in place and it's just going to be good enough. You've already fallen off the boat, right? Because like you have to be adaptable. You have to be agile. You have to react and respond to stimuli as they come across because there's only so much that any of us can control. And there's all this outside forces that are far beyond our control or influence that have a direct impact on our ability to like deliver anything. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's our stance that like the ability to effectively lead through adversity, it's not only proving to be a central theme right now, it could be the central theme in determining the success or failure of, of companies moving forward. And that's not just like the top brass, the lead execs, this is like maybe even more so 
up and down the food chain of an organization. The ability for a middle manager to like make effective decisions, to, to manage up, to advocate for certain things, to request certain things, to supply air um, cover and support for their teams, to provide feedback, to mitigate conflict, to set expectations, to hold people accountable. It is, you know, it is daunting. It's a lot, a lot of hard work. And there are some evergreen themes that we've come across that just help. Like not many people get formal training on how to be a good manager. More so now than before because companies are investing in it. But to be honest, like most people get promoted because of their technical ability. Like, oh, you bake great cookies. Like you get promoted to like head baker. And then all of a sudden you lift your head up and your job has nothing to do with baking cookies anymore. It's about creating environments to allow other people to make amazing cookies and the finances and running the back office and all that. And you can attest to this just being like, you know, people are like, oh, you're the CEO of a company. You're like, yeah, my job sucks, dude. It's like really hard, really stressful. And I don't bake cookies anymore, you know? Um, so just anyways, that's kind of this, this backdrop to why we think that this is so important and it's truly impacting people's lives at work. I mean, one of our things around better, faster, further is just, you know, between going to work and sleeping, that's like a vast majority of our lives. And we've decided to leave the sleep to other experts. And we've decided to kind of dedicate our lives professionally to helping create better organizations because we believe like if you can create better leaders, if you can develop high-performing teams, if you can help create companies that can scale in effective ways that have sticky cultures that are like supportive for their people, you truly are impacting lives. You are improving the world. And I, I literally go to bed at night knowing that like we're making a difference. And I love it when we get to partner with companies that understand that value um, and kind of give us the keys to the engine room to allow us to kind of get in there and, and fine tune that engine because every organization has an opportunity to do better than they are today. You bet. And, you know, listening to, to you share about leading through adversity and, and talking about it in the business environment, you know, I have found in experience with myself and my own business ventures, uh, as well as with others that we work with, that these I don't know if they're called techniques or, or this performance mindset, the ability to show up and lead not other, not just others, but yourself as well through challenging times. This pays dividends inside the work environment, but it also pays dividends outside the work environment. And I think that's a huge takeaway for people. It's that, you know, if, if things are a little wonky in the workplace, guaranteed some of that uh, carries over outside of work. And as you said just a few minutes ago, you know, we basically spend the large part of our, our time on earth, either at work or in bed, that precious amount of time that we have between when we leave the office or leave whatever job site that we're at, and we have some time with our family or just with ourselves or with friends or what have you, that time is so precious. And if we are unable to really utilize that time in a way that's meaningful, it's, that's tough. So yeah. So this performance mindset and, and leading to adversity and all these techniques and all these perspectives and ways of thinking and ways of being are so important in all aspects of life. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, if your work life is dialed in, but your home life is a shit show, like, is that winning? I'm not sure. Right. If your home life is dialed in, but your work life is just a hot mess, like you're probably not feeling, uh, you know, like you're winning there either. And so look, life is messy. People 
get married, people have babies, people die, people get sick. I mean, like life is life and there's just dynamics and pressures that kind of come down through that. But assuming all that to be true, you, you kind of have two choices as an individual, right? And that carries over into like team culture and company culture. You can point fingers, you can bitch and moan, you can whine, you can blame, and you can say, woe is me. Like the world is scary and dark and hard and it's unfair and like, blah, blah, blah. Or you can freaking put on your boots and like kind of, I don't want to say toughen up, but like square up the shoulders and be like, okay, this is my reality right now. Like, here's what I'm going to focus on. Here's what I have control and influence over. Here's the stuff I don't. We fret a lot about things. We have zero control or influence over. And that spins us up and we get wrapped around the axle worrying about things that we can't change. So compartmentalizing that as a leader, as a manager, as a peer, as a boss and finding ways to focus on the things that we can. And like, that is a mindset shift and that's a paradigm shift for a lot of people and behaviors more often than not follow mindsets. Sometimes it's the opposite. We can talk about that maybe in another one, but like by changing your perspective on something, it changes the way you think about it. It changes the way you talk about it. It changes the way you show up. It changes the energy and the vibe that you bring to any conversation um, even, and maybe especially when times are tough. So assuming that like life is not easy for many people right now, you know, a lot of the work that we've been doing at Better Faster Further over the past two years probably is really been focused on helping kind of leaders and teams and companies go through these transitions of like, you know, let's say plan A was this like pre-pandemic life. And it's not all about the pandemic, but like, that pre version of our reality where like we had plans and everybody went to work and blah, blah, blah. And then it was like the pandemic hit and everyone's like, shit, like we got to do things differently. Right. Like this is, this is getting real. And maybe that was plan B, but that was a pretty big transition. And then plan C was like, Oh my God, we thought this was going to be like a two or three month little jaunt down pandemic road. Like, you know, we're a year in and we're still not, haven't seen the bottom of this thing yet. So like, that's plan C, plan D, plan E. But like the point is now we're in, let's call it plan L or whatever, is this new reality of this hybrid world that we live in. And companies and leaders are struggling with a lot around culture, right? They're like, dude, I want people back in the office, but it feels um, kind of tone deaf to ask people to come in five days a week. What's two or three like? And people are doing the tug of war and which days and how do we do meetings and, you know, are we efficient? And you've got employees on the other side being like, bro, I'm legitimately more productive when I'm not at work and I don't have to commute. And I'm a genuinely like happier person when I get to take my kids to school and do these things. So the autonomy and flexibility that comes with that hybrid work environment. However, some companies have kind of lost control and are no longer able to really understand if people are more efficient and effective, right? I could tell you that, but am I? Um, so anyways, this is this new reality of this hybrid work environment. And I think the thing that I really just want to highlight in this, especially in the preface of, of just kind of the mindset and the reality we're in is all of these transitions, all of these pressures, the, the pandemic, the supply chains, the wars, like all of those create a lot of dynamics and challenges that leaders and companies have to face every day. Um, and, and, and let's not kid ourselves. They are directly impacting a company's ability to execute on multiple fronts. They are they are they are compounding um, positive and negative kind of uh, markets. They are the supply chain is hitting across board. We're looking at tech companies doing mass layoffs 
Meta, Facebook just laid off 11,000 people. I mean, that's a lot of people. For, for Meta, it's a, you know, it's a small percentage. But I mean, you've got, you've got mass layoffs happening in the tech environment. All that talent is going to end up somewhere. Right now, they're, they're jobless. But it's like, that's a, on the face of it, it's a challenge. It's an it's a, it's a adversity. It's a disruption. But in the same breath, it is creating these new opportunities. Like that fallout of all this talent getting freed up that fallout from people getting to like redesign and recreate their life is a huge opportunity that, that they wouldn't have had if they kept working at, at Meta. So, you know, I think the, the shape of the conversation for us today, and, and Adam, you can chime in and, you know, A, with your experience, which you've had a lot of, and, you know, any questions you may have is like, even in the face of all that, we still have to make decisions at work. We still have to lead people. We still have to like have the mission we still need to make decisions and guide people. We still have to like allocate resources. Work has to get done and, and nobody has all the answers, right? If we did, life would be a lot easier. So how does a manager or how does a leader wake up every morning and, and like get their head right so that they can get their kind of cultures and their decision-making right and truly lead people in, in a time that doesn't, like it's murky and it's hard and there's headwinds you got to take advantage of those moments. And to your point, that was my long kind of rant about this whole thing was, you know, between sleep and going to work, you know, you've got this little bit of kind of personal time or family time, but that work window, you want to be as effective and efficient as possible. And if you don't, then you're probably in the wrong role, right? Mm -hmm. So as a leader and as a manager, if you truly want to kick ass, then you really got to have a plan of attack. You got to think about how you approach people. You got to think about how you communicate. You got to think and, and, change how you behave around people, how you mitigate conflicts. Um, at the end of the day, people need and want to be led. And I believe anybody can be a leader. You don't have to have a fancy title. You can be, a, you can be an individual contributor on the front lines of a sales team and not have any you know, direct reports and you can be a leader. Then there's the then there's the like kind of um, normal normalized version of leadership where you like have a title and you have teams and things like that, but you can still really dissect and, and audit how you're showing up at work and you can have a profound impact. I think most people undervalue the amount of influence they have on other people, regardless of title. And I think, you know, mindset shifts are, are, are foundational to this. And I think in a follow-up podcast, we'll talk more about like, you know, how those shifting mindsets then shift behaviors. Cause there is definitely a, a very intimate connection between those two. But I think today we're going to focus on some of the, the, the frameworks around the mindsets. Yeah, you and you brought up a good point about um, about leadership and that it's it's title agnostic, meaning anybody can be a leader. And oftentimes people people are leaders in business without the title of, you know, executive vice president or 100%. senior vice president or whatever it is. And I think that's really important. I also think it's important that the, the, the first person that you have to lead every day is yourself. And so you mentioned getting out of bed and getting into the right mindset and making that shift in perspective or whatever it is that needs to be done at that moment. The first person you're leading every day is yourself. And I think that's a key component. So how you show up for you will impact how you show up for others throughout the day. Absolutely. And I'm just curious what, like in your own words, Regan, what, what is your sort of like, how would you frame leadership? What is it to you? I think truly effective leaders are servant leaders, right? They're thinking more about others than themselves. And your job as a leader 
is to create environments that are conducive for other people to do their best work, whatever that may be, right? Mm -hmm. So sometimes that means providing air cover. Sometimes that that means clarifying the mission. Sometimes that means letting people go, right? Sometimes that means holding people accountable, but your job is to create conducive environments for people to kick ass every day. Mm -hmm. And like on the surface, that sounds relatively straightforward, but when you think about it, like every one of us, is very unique. We have fears, neuroses, health things, egos, drives, desires, strengths, weaknesses. And, you know, let's say you and I are a team and then we hire two more people on our team. That's now four people's egos, drives, desires, conflict styles, communication styles, all at play. It starts to get crazy. Now imagine 400 humans coming together to try to achieve something like it becomes increasingly dynamic and complex. And at some point you can look at it and be like, if anybody knew what was going on in my head through any given day, I'd be put in an insane asylum. But if you look at that compounded by 400 people, that's a pretty dynamic environment, right? So, and and that's what we call an organization is people coming together to achieve a, a, a task or an outcome, hospitals, schools, nonprofits, for-profits, tech companies, does not matter, right? You're getting humans to come together. And, and leaders need to look at optimizing how work gets done, processes, and, and then the people side. And there are some people that are very driven by the process. We need meetings. We need goals. We need these things. Absolutely. And you got to have that dialed in. But you can't just do that and not have the people side dialed in. There are other companies or people that are really optimized to the people, amazing cultures, very supportive, you know, blah, 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 but they don't execute as well because their process processes are all over the map. A good leader will look at their organization through the lens of people and process, and they will optimize that, that those concentric circles and where they overlap. Um, so at the end of the day, it's really a leader's job in our opinion is to create environments that are conducive for other people to do their best work. And sometimes that means you got to be a driver. Sometimes that means you got to get out of the way, but that's where that like emotional intelligence, that situational awareness comes into play. Mm-hmm. You, I mean, it sounds like you're, you're talking a lot about the importance of having both people and processes that, that having one doing great is not enough, but you got to have both. And, you know, to sort of maybe double click on that a little bit, the connective tissue between people and process, would you say that that is the mission? the purpose, the why? Uh, that's a good question. I, I'm, I'm trying to think about exactly, you know, what the question is and how to answer it. I think that the, the connective tissue between people and process is the how. Like, you know, the mission could be and maybe should supersede mm-hmm. all of that, right? So like, what are we trying to achieve as an organization? Why does any of this matter? Like to understand the why is, is mission critical, And then right below that is like, once we understand why we're doing what we're doing, then we can look at how we do it and how we do it is through processes and people. Right. Mm -hmm. And those are not separate. Like we talk about them now as if they're like one's on the right and one's on the left. They are fully integrated when, when you have a high performing organization, right? They are, they are, I don't want to say fluid, but one supports the other or detracts from the other at any given point. And there are inherent frictions associated with that. Like, if you want to have a hyper-optimized process, you're probably going to annoy some people because they're going to have to like do things in ways that they don't want, but it's super great for the process. It's really efficient. We take great notes, but if you're smoking people out, 
and you know not getting the right kind of engagement or the eye rolls, then then I don't I, I'm not sure if it's the best one, right? If you're hyper optimized for certain things, your your process isn't going to be efficient. The point in that is just that connective tissue is really important, and I would argue that you know probably sixty to seventy percent of what we go into organizations and do is very consistent, right? Like I could go into a hospital and talk about the same themes that I would at Google or Facebook or LinkedIn or PayPal or whatever. However, that 30 to 40% that, that isn't part of that is totally customized, right? Mm -hmm. The culture at company A is quite different than the culture at company B. The founders, the leaders, the staff, the outcomes, the goals, you know, how work gets done, where they're at in the stage of their, of their kind of, you know, life cycle, all of that matters immensely. So that, that 30 to 40% that's customized is is takes a lot of time and energy there's a really kind of uniqueness in it and a and like a specialness if that's the word to it um whereas thematically a lot of the things that we talk about that connective tissue around people in process the themes are super consistent when we go into mm -hmm. organizations yeah it's so cool i mean i mean i wonder if it would be helpful uh for people listening if we sort of you know start at the beginning of of what it means to start to develop that performance mindset you know, sort of what the foundation is there. You talked a little bit about, you know, some of the pieces of the puzzle there in, in um, you know, agility and being responsive and, um, you know, how important the shift in perspective can be. And, uh, but I wonder if, if you don't mind, can you, can you dive into a little bit of setting that foundation, you know, sort of like the beginning place? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's a few very impactful mental models that people can operate from that have a profound um, uh, impact on how to lead people, how to manage people. And I would argue, I'm, I'm using those a little bit interchangeably. We'll talk about leaders versus managers. I think around management is more tactical. Leadership mm -hmm. has some tactical components of management, but this is more like the mindsets around leading people. Mm -hmm. But again, we believe leaders can kind of be anywhere. So it doesn't have to be title specific, but you know, one of the models that, that we've utilized for a long time, and I was first exposed to this quite some time ago through my work at Mariposa Leadership with uh, Sue Bethanis, um, was the ladder of inference. Um, and you can, you can look this up on the web and, and come across it, but it's uh, ladder of inference, I-N-F-E-R-E-N-C-E. -E. Um, it was first kind of um, described by Chris Ardress. And we've adapted it multiple times. In fact, I, I found his model to be a little bit more robust than people can kind of memorize. And I'm a big fan of just dummying stuff down to its core components and um, making it as palatable as possible. I've had clients come back literally a decade later and be like, I loved all our coaching, but that ladder of inference, I still have that mental model like forged in my core memory bank. So, I mean, it's it's pretty profound. But what's interesting about that is, if you think about a ladder with vertical sides and, and a couple, you know, rungs or steps on it, at the bottom of that ladder is data. Like we as humans take in data, otherwise known as stimulus, all day long. Right now, people who are listening to this, the data is coming in, audit, you know, through auditory, right? But oftentimes, depending on like signs, TV commercials, culture, hand gestures, products, voice inflection, body language, eye contact. This is all data that's coming in. And what's shocking is I want to say like 93% of the meaning and context that we glean from interactions is actually nonverbal. 
So mm-hmm. like we think words are the most important thing, but the reality is it's all the other stuff around it, the eye contact, the voice inflection, the hand gestures, all of that is providing a lot more context than the words themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's why emails and texts and Slack and Teams and whatever is really good at some things and really crappy at others, right? Like if I get a text from you, Adam, and it's all caps and has exclamation points, I'm like, oof, Adam's pissed, right? He's on fire. And like, you might not be, you just might like to see text in all caps, but like I'm adding all this meaning to this stuff that you're sending my way, but it's data. And that's what's important. So we get this information, we get this data, we get the stimulus and we climb the ladder of inference. So the next rung in that ladder is because we're humans, we're hardwired to add meaning to that data, right? So we get data and in real time, all the time, we're adding meaning to that. And that's how we like make meaning of our world, right? Language means something, words mean something. A turn signal left means go left, right? A big red stoplight means don't go forward, right? So like all of that is stimulus at its, at its most basic. And our brains are hardwired to want to add meaning to that data. So if you think about this in, at work, if I'm an employee and you're my manager and you give me data points A and B and C, right? We're going to do this thing. Here's the part that you need to do and it has to be done by this time. On, on the surface, that, that sounds like pretty good detail, but if there's big gaps that's missing between those things, I will add my own meaning to those gaps that may have nothing to do with what you want me to do right? So like the point is, let's say there's five people in a meeting. We'll all hear the same words. Five people could walk out of the same meeting, hearing the same thing. And we can have five different versions of what we just heard, right? Two people are like, yep, we're going left. We decided to go left. One person walks out and says, yep, stay the course, you know, and two people could walk out and be like, Hey, don't change a thing. You know, we're, we're, we're still going right. And it's like totally counterintuitive. Like what the hell just happened? You know, everybody heard the same data, but they added different meaning. And the reason that is, is because the rung between the data and the add meaning is where, you know, our biases, our values, our assumptions, oftentimes our upbringing is a big filter. And when you put all this data through that filter, it can distort the meaning that we add to it. Right. So like, if you speak to me in a way that reminds me of somebody that used to trigger me all the time, every word that's coming out of your mouth is triggering me. Whereas for somebody else, it's like the best thing they've ever heard. Do, do you see what I'm saying? So it's like, again, so we, we take in data, we add meaning to it. And then over time, we climb the rung, the next rung of the ladder, and we begin to adopt beliefs. So right now, you know, you and I have known each other for quite some time. Over that time, I have given you data, you have added meaning to it, and you have adopted beliefs about me, right? I know you think I'm a total jerk and always late, never on time. Yeah. <laughs> yep. but, but that happens a lot. So you've adopted a belief about me, for, for better or for worse. So now you walk through life with this belief about me based on the data I've given you and the meaning that you've added to it. And now you start to see me through a certain lens. You now scan the environment for data to support the belief that you've adopted about me, right? So if I think that um, Adam is smart, incredible, caring, responsible, and shows up on time, even if you screw up sometimes, I'll kind of have my blinders on and I'll only see you through that lens. And so I'll start to scan the environment for data to support the belief I've adopted about you. 
The flip side is also true. If, if I believe that you are in it only for yourself, somewhat greedy, you only want a title promotion, right? You've thrown me under the bus a few times. I think you're sleazy. You know, all, even if you show up opposite to that most of the time, every once in a while, when you show up that way, I'll be like, aha, there it is. I knew that's the Adam. That's the real version of Adam. And it becomes this crazy cycle. So what do people do with this? I mean, how can how can the ladder of inference be used as a tool aside from identifying sort of the process of how we all interpret data and add meaning and adopt beliefs? You know, if there is a team or an individual, um, you know, that's listening to this podcast and they're like, oh, this is definitely happening. What do they do with this ladder of inference? How do they use this to sort of shift their perspective or add different meaning to the data or totally? So, yeah, so uh, well, it's an awesome question. And I'd say this is maybe one of the probably most impactful and core foundational things that, 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 that just be, being a human in an, in an environment with other humans to understand. Number one, this is happening in real time all the time. Like that's the, that's the epiphany right there is like you're a human and you work with other humans. So the assumption should be this is happening. Second to that is the only place that we as humans have any influence on the ladder of inference for other people is the data that we give them. Once I give you that data, I've kind of relinquished control of the meaning that you add to it and the beliefs that you adopt, right? That's like your own journey. So the point is I need to be hyper aware of the data, the stimulus, the whatever that I am giving to you. So mm -hmm. when I'm writing an email, if I'm just clanging away and it's, you know, blah, 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 and I hit send, I've just given you a, a limited version of what I'm actually trying to share with you. In an interaction with you, um, am I authentic? Am I credible? You know, am I, do a, is it two-way? Do I ask questions or am I always just hyper-direct? Like the point is you want to be, we, we have a saying like make the implicit explicit. Be explicit. Here's what I need. Here's what I want. How are you doing? I care about you you know, like asking questions, building trust, building rapport, the data and the interactions that you have with humans are, are super important because then you relinquish control. So on the, on the giving end of the ladder of inference, pay attention to how you show up, pay attention to your use of words, pay special attention to how and when you send emails or slacks or text messages because people are adding meaning based on that connect the dots for people be explicit be kind be caring create space if your job as a leader is to really help them do their best job then like sometimes you need to be in a mode of inquiry you got to ask questions you got to create space that's conducive for step people to step into sometimes you got to be in a mode of advocacy which is like dude we got to get this done and here's what that looks like and here's by when both are okay but you got to have the dexterity to flow through both on one other thing, on the receiving end of the ladder of inference, what's really important is that when you're receiving that data, you have to understand that like psychologically, we're hardwired to add meaning to that. But the meaning that we add is based on our biases, our assumptions, our upbringing. So just because you're getting data, you got to hit pause and be like, wait, am I compartmentalizing this person in a negative or positive way? An example is like, if you have a friend that you grew up with that you've been, you know, down the road with a bunch of times, and then your friend just starts showing up in a shitty way, you know, you start making accommodations for them, even though you really don't need them as your friend anymore, right? They're like, dude, this guy, 
takes advantage of me, is only in it for himself, you know, blah, blah, blah. The only reason they're still a friend is because you've known them for a long time. If you met them today, you would have, you would never talk to them again. You know what I mean? If they were a new friend, you'd be like, I'm slicing you out of my life. The point is you, you, you need to compartmentalize in ways that are either helpful or not to getting the things that you want as a human, surrounding yourself with the friends you need, um, creating the challenges you need, sh- getting the communication and support that you want. And that's all about the ladder of inputs. Mm. So many insights in there. I mean, not, I mean, in communication, in the giving side of the ladder inference, it's not just how you give the information, it's when. I mean, when is super important, but we may not think about when. We may just think about, I need to send Regan an email. So I'm going to sit down and be very thoughtful about this email. And then I'm going to send it to him at 2.30 in the morning. Totally. You happen to be up in the middle of the night because you barely sleep, which is true. And like for me, if you're my boss or my boss's boss and I get a text from you at 2.30 in the morning, like to me, that could be alarm bells. I'm like, dude, this is a this is a big time request. 100%. Or it could be like he doesn't respect my home life, and all of a sudden there's a rift, and you know, hundred percent. And I could be emailing you saying, Regan, I'm going to give you a raise. Have a great night. But it could come at two in the morning before you even open the email. There may be opinions or thoughts. Figured at work all the time, dude. Yeah, it's yeah. it's amazing how much time we spend helping organizations and teams and leaders figure out how to unpack communication that happens at work. Yeah. Um, and then the other, the other big aha or takeaway. And I, I mean, we talk about this on a day-to-day basis with our, with our partners and, and internally as well, but the explicity, ex- explicit, how do you say that? You know what I'm saying? Explicitness of communication, right? Oh. If, if it's vague, that opens up the door for the receiving person or people to add even more meaning totally. or more beliefs to that. But so being explicit about your communication and then align, aligning around the go forward, whatever that may be. Yeah. If there's an action, if there's yes. a, yeah, I, I tell yeah. people all the time, it, it, it may feel a bit like kindergarten at first, but dude, we as humans make things way more complex than they need to be like, get back to the basics. Right. And if you talk to any good uh, trainer, you, you know, coach in any of the disciplines, whether it be sports or business, like, the basics are, are the, are the key, right? The secret sauce is like, have good basics, right? Mm-hmm. You know, worry about tweaking the top 5% of the dials later. Like most people overlook the foundational components of, mm-hmm. of communication, the foundational components of leadership, the foundational components of training for for an event diet, like get the basics, right. And then you can build from there. And mm-hmm. that's, that's just a, you know, a huge one. And I, I'd say, you know, understanding that the ladder of inference is happening and there's a visual that we can share with folks. We can maybe put it in the show notes or something. That's really great. The second component, which is also foundational, um, is the ability to build trust. You know, trust is a really interesting thing because again, as humans, you know, when you have it and you know, when you don't, but if you ask somebody what trust is, it's a very nebulous concept, right? And it has very different meanings or fluid meanings, depending on who you're talking to. You know, sometimes somebody is like, yeah, that guy said everything right, but like, I just don't trust him, right? Like it's a vibe, it's a feeling that you get. It's like a gut instinct. And like, how do you actually describe that? Um, but, you know, I believe that every interaction you have with a human, whether it be in person or virtually or over, over text or email, is an opportunity to either build trust or erode trust. So when you when you when you think about it that way, you're like, 
this isn't just a fleeting moment. This is an opportunity for me to build trust with this person in micro doses, right? Boop, boop, boop. And, and trust is built drop by drop by drop, but trust is lost in bucketfuls, right? Like it takes a single email to implode a 20-year relationship, right? It takes a bad text at two in the morning to implode a marriage. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, like it's, it's insane. And when you think about it at work, you've got a lot of people avoiding each other, avoiding tough conversations, avoiding giving feedback, avoiding getting feedback because the trust has been eroded. So mm -hmm. this, you know, it, it found, uh, concept number one was the ladder of inference. Concept number two is how to build trust, right? That, that is, that is key. And there are, you know, two models. One, many people may be aware of, but it's the five dysfunctions of a team. Um, Patrick Lencioni has done uh, a lot of great work there. And uh, there are books and models out there we use a lot. And I, I like it because it's, again, quite simple. Um, but you've got kind of this foundational uh, layer of trust. And if I trust somebody, then I'm willing to have tough conversations, right? I'm willing to have an adult conversation with somebody if there's a foundation of trust there. And if I'm, if I'm willing to have uh, a, a meaningful conversation with somebody, that means giving and receiving feedback, then I can start to get really strong commitments. I can start to make strong commitments, right? Because we've been able to kind of hash it out. And if I make a strong commitment, now I've got much greater levels of accountability. And when you have high accountability in an organization, results kick ass, right? Like you don't have to worry about me holding myself accountable because I'm going to hold myself accountable. And if you happen to be going rogue and kind of deviating from the norm, we've given each other permission to like pull you back in. And instead of me being an ass, right? It's you being like, thanks, dude. I lost my way for a second. I appreciate the feedback. I didn't realize I was doing that, whatever it may be. But coming back to this notion of trust and what it is, there is, um, you know, I came across this model uh, in a article that was written by Anne Raimondi, um, who I believe is in Silicon Valley here, uh, through first round capital. And again, a great, great organization. They are many companies first round of capital. Um, we've done some work with them as well, but um, I came across this in one of their articles, but it's, it's what's called the trust equation. And I loved it because originally I think it was, um, I did some research originally it was created by um, I think uh, Stephen Drozdek and Lynn Fisher, if I have that right, but uh, I want to give credit where credit is due. But I now use this model all the time, which is super cool. But basically, it's this trust equation. And, and, and trust um, equals credibility. So how credible is someone on a particular subject? Oftentimes, credibility comes with the schools you went to, your previous work experience. But like, you know, how good are you on paper? Are you credible? So credibility plus reliability, which is really how reliable have they proven to be over time, right? plus authenticity, which is how authentic do you believe they are as a person, divided by the perception of self-interest. So how much do you think they're acting in their own self-interest? So if you think about that, it, it helps kind of break down what trust is. So do I trust this person? If I trust you, it's probably because I believe you have some level of credibility. You have proven yourself to be reliable or consistent over time. I believe you're showing it up in authentic ways. And I believe that you're in it for the greater good, not just for Adam, right? But if I, if I don't trust somebody for, for any reason, it's probably because one of those areas has broken down. 
you may be credible. You may kick butt at work. You may show up authentically. I might not like it, but it's authentic. But if you're only in it for your for yourself, it cuts. It, it it's divided by that one, right? So you you're just cutting yourself off at the knees. Oftentimes, when people say, "Yeah, they said the right things," but I just don't trust them, it's because that authenticity piece isn't in place. It feels like they're just showing up fake, or they're in it for themselves. But I find that really a fascinating concept. One final thing on that: oftentimes, when a person is new to a team or when a team is kind of forming, we don't always trust each other because we haven't had enough cycles. That reliability component isn't there yet. Like we haven't gone to war together. We haven't, we haven't dropped a waterfall together. You haven't had to save my life yet. So like, are you reliable? I don't know. That's TBD. I think you're a great human, but like we haven't, we haven't gone down that path yet. So sometimes trust isn't something good or bad. It's just, we haven't had the cycles yet to, to perform in the trenches together and that's built over time and again trust is built drop by drop by drop but it can be eroded instantly um in bucketfuls and oftentimes it's because something in that trust equation has broken down and again i think we can put this in our show notes but it's a very powerful tool to understand you and i have dropped a waterfall together it's been a little while um, Absolutely. That's why I trust you, buddy. That's it. That's it. But I mean, it's, it's interesting. You know, it takes all of those components of the trust equation to, to build trust in somebody, but it only takes one of those components to not be there or fully developed yet for trust not to be there. It's way yeah. easier to burn people and erode trust than it is to build it. And that's yeah. the reality. If you're busy running around doing you and you're like, Mr. Leader or, you know, and, and task to task, project, project, barking orders and telling people what to do, you're not building trust. And if you believe your job is to actually create environments that are conducive for other people to do their best work, you have to be focused on building trust. You mm -hmm. have to understand that the ladder of inference is at play. And you talked about at the very beginning of, of getting in, into the explanation of the trust equation, you talked about the high performing teams model. And I think that would be an interesting one to touch on now as well, uh, because trust being, you know, a key component to build a high performing team and also a key component in which a high performing team can break down. Totally. Uh, I mean, you think about, you know, there are many, many books. You and I were chatting about a few before we uh, hit record on this. But, you know, you look at like the elite military, you know, we, we, we joke sometimes or people have actually told us you guys are like SEAL Team 6. You know, you come in the back door, you're stealthy. You do your work and you go away and sometimes people don't even know you're there. But the reality is like SEAL teams are, are, are teams because they have oftentimes been to war together, but they have trained together. And, and the whole idea is like, you know, no soldier left behind. Like they know they have each other's backs. They know they have trained for so long and so hard in the trenches, in the muck together, that that fabric of trust is truly there. And when you think about it through the work environment, Sometimes you don't have time to build that level of trust. And it, it doesn't have to be like slumber parties and sleepovers all the time, right? It's like trust can be built in short moments for teams that have to come together for short periods of time. Mm -hmm. it, it, the, the level of trust or the depth of trust doesn't have to be profound, but it has to be enough to be able to have the adult conversations. Mm -hmm. If you're looking around a team and you're seeing that like they are... Um, avoiding conflict they are not holding people accountable they are not providing feedback you have trust issues period mm -hmm. right you have to get in the muck and figure out what you know what is broken there and fix that so from a high performing team uh, you know perspective which is probably my 
most passionate area um, of like just working with companies, trust is the foundational component and, and the ability to work through conflict or friction because that's the stuff that's kind of below the waterline. The stuff that's above the waterline is making commitments, holding each other accountable and striving for results. And that's mm -hmm. the stuff that companies spend a lot of time on. They're like, let's set goals and let's hold each other accountable. But it's this like superficial kind of like traffic cop kind of way of doing it, you know? And if you get below the waterline and you start to talk about, is this team debating each other? Are they pushing back? Are they pressure testing concepts and ideas? Are they willing to argue and debate? It doesn't have to be yelling and fisticuffs, but if I think that's an idea that isn't credible, I should be able to tell you that. We should be able to leave with the best decision because then we can lock arms like a SEAL team and go out there and perform and not worry about my teammate throwing me under the bus because I know we have each other's backs. Mm -hmm. I mean, conflict being a key component to any any high-performing team. I mean, it needs to be there. If we all are agreeing all the time, yeah. something is not being said. And likely many somethings are not being said. And people are avoiding what they really need to say, what they want to say, or how they feel. And that in and of itself will, will erode trust. Yeah. And I think, look, if you, again, staying at like a, a certain elevation for this conversation, your job as a leader is to create conducive environments. In order to create a conducive environment, it's all about others, not about you. Don't worry about you. Like you, you can accommodate, you can figure it out. You can do whatever you need to later. Like your job is to get other people to perform as well as they can. Right. Mm -hmm. So that, that's a, that's a groundbreaking lens to go to work in every day. Like it, nobody cares about you create environments for other people and the, and the recognition and the rewards and the, and the results will come. Understand that the ladder of inference is key. It is happening. It is in real time. It is 24-7. It never stops. The more you understand that, the more importance is placed and awareness is placed on the data that you give to others. Be explicit. Connect the dots. Give as much context as is needed. Inform people of what's going on, what your expectations are, when things are due, what the feedback looks like, you know, and, and, and focus on building trusting relationships. You don't have to always be a nice person to build trust. In fact, people often avoid tough conversations because they're worried it's going to hurt somebody's feelings. Mm -hmm. I can give some really tough feedback in an honest, direct way and build more trust than if I avoided that conversation. And that's the irony is people avoid conflict because they're worried they're going to hurt somebody's feelings when in fact you can have a, a very meaningful adult conversation that touches on very sensitive topics and both parties can leave with a heightened sense of trust than you can than you had before going into that meeting yep and and there it is you know and if the, you, the very thing that people are avoiding is the very thing that's needed to build trust in the relationship ooh, yeah. and the very thing that people want totally and and like if you just ask somebody, hey, you want to go have a tough conversation? Like, hell no. I, I want to go like get my to-do list done. You know what I mean? So it's like, yeah. it comes back to the timing. You got to create a conducive environment to uh -huh. set that up so that you can have the right conversation, right? The timing has to be right. The setup has to be right. Um, and you just have to be self-aware. And, and to be honest, most people are not self-aware. Most people are walking through life like one or two colors. And to be a good leader, you need to be five different colors almost at the same time at any given moment. So, mm -hmm. you know, so the first component is the ladder of inference. The second one is building trust. 
I'd say the third one, and none of these are more important than the other, but these are like the four kind of groundbreaking mindsets, I think, for effective leadership. The fourth one is really focusing on the mission. Like, what are we trying to achieve? And that's just critical. So many employees, so many teams are missionless. They are filled with people doing lots of busy work, but the connection to what I do day in and day out to the impact it has big picture is not there. Fuzzy, opaque, or, or just obsolete, depending on how it is. Good leaders are constantly calibrating and recalibrating their teams, their leaders, their employees' expectations to the desired outcome. Mm-hmm. And in the world that we live in, if you look back over the last two years, the mission might not have changed, but how we deliver the mission has changed immensely. For other companies, that mission literally changed, right? So then that means if the mission changed, how we get work done has to change. So we have to, this is what we call that connective tissue, like the ability for a leader or a manager or anyone to have as much clarity as possible around what the hell are we doing right now? And then how does that connect to some desired future outcome? Right. And I literally think about like, what's the hill we are trying to take? A mental model for people is, is, is much easier to understand than a bunch of words. So like, imagine me as a leader going and climbing a, a hill, Mount Tam here, or, you know, wherever you are, um, you know, a mountain near you. And I place a beacon on top of that hill that flashes every 30 seconds, right? Without fail, every 30 seconds, it flashes and it gets people's attention. And I say, our mission is to summit that hill by the end of the year, right? That's a pretty clear mission. We haven't described how we're going to get there yet. I'm just saying like, we know collectively what we're trying to achieve. There's a due date and an expectation that we summit by the end of the year, right? That is critical because now as managers, as leaders, as employees, I can begin to make decisions. I can allocate resources. I can optimize my team. I can make trade-offs in honor of that. Now, there's a lot of coordination that has to go from point A to point B, but the ability for a manager or a leader to both zoom in to the tactical day-to-day, but then also zoom out and articulate what the mission is, what that desired future state is, is key. And here's here's the mindset shift for people. The mission is so critical because I want people making near-term decisions based on a long-term lens, longer term, right? So if the mission is to summit this hill by the end of the year, then I want people making plans with the end of year and a summit in mind, and I want them working backwards. Okay, if we have to summit, what does Base Camp 3 look like? What does Base Camp 2 look like? Okay, that means we got to build Base Camp 1 needs A, B, C, and D ready to go by the end of this month right? And if the mission is to climb Mount Everest, we're going to pack and plan a certain way, right? We need parkas and tents and oxygen and crampons and ladders for crevasses and all that stuff. But if our mission is to go to the Mariana Trench, the bottom of the ocean, you know how good a parka is going to work down there? It's not, right? You know where your ladder is going to be? Nowhere, right? That you're just going to pack and plan depending on what that mission is very differently. And it, it's, you know, I'm, I'm being extreme in the, in the analogy, but those nuances have profound downstream kind of consequences in, in, in the packing and planning and decision-making. The point I really want to drive home is you got to have a desired outcome. you got to be clear on what the mission is. What does success look and sound and feel like? And if you're a leader and you can articulate what 
success looks and sounds and feels like and, and when we're going to get there. You can then empower your teams to make near-term decisions based on that longer-term lens, and they'll do a ton of the work for you, right? You, you, your job is now just to like remove obstacles, let them know like what's coming around the corner, check the weather every, you know, once in a while, let them know a big storm is coming while they're building, you know, base camp one, two, and three. Mm -hmm. Which is important because it, it, it changes the actions that are taking beginning today all the way until the end of the year when we stand on top of Mount Tam and get to that beacon. Because if we're clear about where we're going and when we need to be there, then the how informs all those decisions, which means that is, there is a need then to make some short-term trade-offs, you know, to, to jettison some of the other things that aren't serving that more important mission, right? The critical mission for the team. Yeah, I think what you said is really key. You know, an example of that is like, we, we like to think in trajectories. So if we're at point A and we want to be at point B, like instead of setting hard and rigid goals, like how do we think in a trajectory that gets us there? And then how do we use that desired future state as the mission and work backwards from that? But inevitably, you know, like I said earlier, we, we control only so many things in our world and there's going to be you know, an external input that changes our plans. There's going to, you know, an employee is going to leave. Somebody's going to get married or get sick or whatever it is, but like something's going to happen. It's going to have to, we're going to have to adapt, right? Oftentimes a shiny object will come across our, our, our purview and we're going to be like, oh, shiny object, like this pays lots of money or this could be really cool. And the point is if we have our trajectory set and a shiny object shows up over here, we kind of have what we coach teams to do is is to think about this in through three three lenses. Number one is shiny object. Given our current trajectory, is there a way that we could pull the shiny object into our trajectory? If so, let's do it. But that's a pause moment, right? We hit pause, we zoom out, we say shiny object, we have a conversation, we kind of calibrate or recalibrate, and then and then we execute, right? But that's a pause moment with the team. If so, let's do it. Is this shiny object so shiny that we actually need to let go of our previous trajectory and pivot and, and absorb this new one? Because that's a big change of plans, right? That's a whole different kind of thing. And if so, let's do it. But again, that's a zoom out moment. The third one is really around, is this a shiny object? And is it a big distraction? Because we could go chase that shiny object for a year or quarters and then lift our heads up and not be any further along on the trajectory trajectory that we had set beforehand. So mm -hmm. in that point, it's a distraction. We have to kill it. But the mm -hmm. point is once again, understanding the current state, the desired future state, that kind of shiny object moment is a, is, is a zoom out moment that a lot of managers and a lot of the leaders aren't, aren't privy to. And would you explain just for a moment, the importance of working backwards on that trajectory? So defining that desired future state or the mission, right? And then working backwards from there instead of working from where we are today to get to that. Yeah. So the reason that's so key, most people wake up in the morning and are thinking about their to-do list, their calendar, what's kind of right in front of them. Mm -hmm. uh, the fourth concept we'll share here in just a second, kind of double clicks on that. But they're making near-term decisions based on a near-term lens, right? They're like, there's a, there's a lot log jam analogy I like to use is, let's say we're, we're in a raft or a kayak, canoe, whatever, we're going down the river and we come around a corner and there's a big log jam in front of us. And it's like the river literally flows through it. There's nowhere to go, right? What most people do is they're like, shit, there's a log jam in front of me. Get the chainsaw, get the axes, let's start removing logs, right? And 
teams of people, lots of resources, time and energy, sawdust is flying, you know, we're sweating, everybody's working really hard and we're removing logs. Like one could argue that is progress. I'm getting my to-do list done. However, for every log we remove, two more come down the river, you know, jam up the log jam even more. And we're like, wow, we're tired, right? What we would suggest, that's people making near-term decisions on a near-term lens, what's right in front of them. What we're suggesting is like, hit pause, let's zoom out. Let's paddle over to this shoreline, right? With our team, or we send some scouts. Let's climb up on the bank a hundred feet, right? And let's get some perspective. Those people go up there and they're like, holy shit, this log jam is like a mile long. And it's like 25 feet deep. There's thousands of logs here. Like, dude, we it's going to take us two years to chip through this, let alone the new stuff that's coming down that we have no control over, right? But they look down there with their binoculars and down, you know, at the very beginning of the log jam is this keystone log. And it got jammed up between two boulders that happen to be close together. And that jammed up. And then all these other logs kind of got jammed up there. And they're like, oh my God, if we take our chainsaws and we go remove that one keystone log, the river will just wash all of these log jam, the rest of the log jams out. So like without that perspective, without that big kind of mindset shift to see the zoom out opportunity to understand that desired future state, we would still be making sawdust on those thousands of logs on the front end, making headway, but not getting any further, right? We may be actually losing ground. Whereas we go consolidate our resources on this area. It's a pivotal moment with high leverage. The river washes all these logs away. Now we have some green real estate. We're like able to raft down the river again. So that keystone log analogy is so important because most people don't think about that. They're so in the weeds making sawdust because that's their job, right? Like they got to just remove logs that they lose sight of the bigger picture. And as a manager and a leader, it's so key to be able to go in and, and, and do that when needed, but to have it be high leverage based on a bigger, bigger perspective. You're, you're sort of lighting up a concept you and I were talking about just before this, before we, we jumped onto this podcast. And it, it was the concept of being reactive versus responsive, right? And this is, that is such a great visual to get for people to get their head wrapped around the difference between being reactive and responsive, reactive being just straight away trying to cut the logs out, you know, blowing sawdust everywhere, making no progress and responsive being, okay, here's the problem. Let's take a walk up high, get a vantage point. Yep. And let's see what, let's see what the best decision is here, given what we have available to us. Totally. I love I mean, that, that perspective is, is super key. And again, these analogies, these metaphors tend to resonate more than anything. Like people have their own mental mm -hmm. image, you know, and coming back to the ladder of inference, like I'm sharing words, but like the meaning you're adding to it, your mental image may be a little different than mine. Right. But it's like, you, we get it, but there's consistency there. Um, mm -hmm. The other thing that you, you shared, which I think is, is, is really good. And then we'll, we'll pivot to the fourth concept is um, being responsive versus reactive. So I find in a lot of our work, there's a lot of reactivity, both in the system. There's a lot of reactive decision-making by managers and leaders, employees, because they, they, they kind of lack a bigger, bigger picture perspective, mm -hmm. you know, an analogy there is, um, there's a big difference between being responsive versus reactive. So like, if you think about, you know, a, a fire crew or ambulance drivers, you know, they get a, they get a, a, a call and it's a car crash on the 101. 
that's all they know, right? Like they're first on the scene and, you know, but they have training, they have prepared, they have protocols that they go through to respond to certain types of incidences, right? As opposed to just showing up and be like, oh my God, I have no plans and this and that. It's like, that's a very reactive stance. So the difference between being reactive or, pro or, um, or responsive is being responsive is in a proactive stance. There is like you are prepared for that reactivity to come, right? You have plans and have prepared and expect it and have procedures and such. And much like the military, again, it's not the first time they've seen this thing. So there's some pattern recognition. And in organizations, for leaders, you, you should do the same. Instead of just being like, I've lost control and everything's coming at me and woe is me, I can't help it. You're spinning up this freneticism in your team, psychologically and, and behaviorally. But if you can be more responsive, which is like, hey, when these types of events happen, this is how we re respond. When these types of events happen, this is how we respond. And you never quite know what the event may be, but it gets yourself in a proactive mindset. You get a stance, proactive behaviors, and it, it, you, you, you begin to build culture in that way. And it has a profound impact on, on teams. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you don't know the strength of your team until Shea hits the fan, right? And so, like, mm -hmm. I see companies and teams who have really struggled through this pandemic and through these mm -hmm. last couple of years because of their inability to um, face the music and stand the pressure. I mean, companies have just fallen apart. We're seeing it day in and day out. And then there's those that have a bit more grit and tenacity and agility that have, you know, survived. I wouldn't, you know, some may have thrived, but I think even in today's environment, like surviving and like not losing tons of money is winning, right? Like if, if companies and teams can come out of this thing in a, in, a, in a, like effectively good enough, they're going to be able to face anything moving forward right mm -hmm. and, and this is this is a proving ground right like some people are not going to make it and mm -hmm. won't make it and it, it'll be interesting to see coming back with all these tech layoffs at least in the in, in our area you know there's thousands of people who are losing their jobs it'll be interesting to see how that surge of talent really plays out and 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 what other organizations are gonna are gonna gonna do with it mm -hmm. i mean my hope there too is that we get a we get a wave of innovation and new companies, new entrepreneurs, new founders. Yeah. You know, I take the lead. Yep. I, and I, and that, that's my hope because we need it. Yeah. You know, we we need that innovation. And you know, hey, pain is one of the greatest motivators for change, right? I you well, well said. It, it's 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 tough sometimes, but I think um one of the articles I've been working on writing is um, you know, like uh embracing discomfort. Right. Like mm -hmm. the people that and that's a very seal-esque mindset as well. Like I, I can't remember, but there's just like a lot kind of on this topic. But through the work lens, it's like the goal shouldn't be to become a black belt and then get lazy. Right. Like the goal should become like become a black belt and then find ways to be a white belt and other things. Right. Mm -hmm. How can you strive to constantly be learning? And learning doesn't come from getting comfortable. So. Right. There is no finish line. Yeah, exactly. Well, hey, this last concept, um, I think the fourth one, which is really key as well, is this idea of like global versus local. And again, you know, the most people wake up in the morning, have amazingly good intentions, put on their shoes, brush their teeth, go to work or go to the office or go to their computer, whatever it is, and like start tackling their to-do list. They're trying to create the best marketing team that they can. They're trying to create the best engineering org. They're trying to solve their problems that are that are very real. They're very real problems, but they're very 
near term. They're oftentimes very proximal. They're very localized, right? And one of the concepts that we're trying to get, you know, leaders and managers to start to, to wrap their heads around is this notion of optimizing globally versus optimizing locally. So the key concept globally would be like optimizing for the company, optimizing for the greater team. Locally would be like optimizing for self or optimizing for your team in spite of what's needed for the, for the bigger organization. And right. if you think about the intent of, of being a leader, it's like many people think it's like, I'm a VP of engineering. I need to create the best engineering organization that I can, given the resources I have. And there's, again, nothing wrong with that. But that may mean by building an optimized engineering organization, you may be sub-optimizing other departments, other leaders, other teams, and by default, sub-optimizing the, the organization, right? Like maybe in this quarter, that marketing team needed the headcount that you have for a couple of engineers that they could be using right then, right there to drive the company mission forward. But you don't want to share that headcount because that's going to sub-optimize your engineering org, right? Like who doesn't want more heads to get work done, right? By sh not sharing information, not sharing resources, not having a broad understanding of the bigger picture, people start to sub-optimize for their local teams, which, or they start to optimize for local teams, which sub-optimizes the company, right? Mm -hmm. And so what's fascinating is when you start to get leaders and managers to think about, okay, zoom out, think big picture. Where are we now? What's the big picture? What's the mission? What's the desired future state? Now, how do I optimize for the org or the larger team? Because what that may mean, not necessarily, but oftentimes it means that by optimizing for the bigger picture, by optimizing for the, the organization, I may be sub-optimized. I might not get the headcount that I want right now. I may have to push certain features out later, but it's, it's okay because we're actually driving the company forward by doing so. But if I don't have that bigger picture perspective, why would I want to delay a feature or give up a headcount? Because it's going to cause me near-term discomfort or pain. But if I, if I understand how it connects to the bigger picture, I'm willing to share that resource much more liberally. Right. If I don't have that, then I'm, I'm a lot less willing to do so. I love it. Yeah. I mean, not to, not to throw long distance trail running into the mix, but it's the same yeah. thing. You're signing up for something where, you know, there is going to be short-term discomfort. That short-term discomfort may, may last for five miles, 10 miles, hundred miles, whatever. But the end result is that you're working towards something larger, a bigger goal, a bigger objective. And oftentimes in business, in life, in relationships, there is the need to embrace that discomfort, to make those trade-offs in the near term in order to achieve the long-term desired state. Yeah. And if you think about, look, just using your, your, your 240 experience recently, like if you understand what the goal is, the goal is to finish the race, right? Goal number one, that is our mission, finish the race. Now, because we understand that, we're willing to make trade-offs along the way, right? There may be a leg, right, that is 22 miles long that we just have to walk. Hell, we'll military crawl from point A to point B just to conserve energy because it's, it's, a, it's a marathon, not a sprint, right? So my point is like, you're more willing to make that trade-off because you understand what the, what the big picture desired outcome is. If you don't have that, then you're like, you know, the, the hare instead of the tortoise. And you're like doing sprints in between because you like your ego won't let people outrun you. Right. 
if somebody who's like historically slower than you passes you, right? It, it, it kills me. Like when I do the double dipsy race, there's people literally almost twice my age passing me. And I'm like, it's a blow to your ego. You're like, how is that <laughs> right now? Or like, you know, a 12 year old is like sprinting, passing. I'm like, this is ridiculous. But the point is that I may pass them later because they smoke themselves out. It's like, you 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 make these you make these localized trade-offs in honor of what's what's good globally and so the 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 analogy can play out a bunch of different ways but the point is organizations and teams need to be optimizing globally as opposed to optimizing locally and as a leader you want to begin to instill that thinking into your managers into your leaders and the the best way to do so is to have clear communication around the mission right? Inform them and help them to create environments that are conducive for their teams to do their best work. And at times sharing the trade-offs that need to be made, right? Like I use the analogy, if, if, if I work at a company and I have my to-do list for a given week or a given month, and somebody asks me to hands me a hands me a shovel and some mud boots and is like, hey man, can you go shovel that pile of horse shit over there for me? Mm -hmm. You're like, what are you talking about? Like nobody wants to shovel horse shit, right? But if that manager or that leader came to me and said, hey, we're here right now and our pot of gold at the end of the quarter or the end of the you know year is over here and there happens to be this like pile of horse shit in the way. I, I can, can you help out? Can you shovel it this week and I'll shovel it next week because it's getting us closer to our goal. For the most part, I'll shovel horseshit with a smile because I realize it's it's getting us close. Every scoop is getting us closer. But if I don't have that longer term lens, I'm just shoveling shit and nobody wants to do that. So again, extreme analogy or metaphor, but the point is people are, are going to avoid the complicated, complex, messy piles of horseshit when in fact, that's the stuff they should be striving to remove. But if you don't have that longer term lens, you're, 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 you're not gonna do it. Or you're gonna be a lot less willing to do it. Yeah, the importance of, of understanding the mission and being connected to the purpose, you know, and aligned, the whole team aligned around that mission, knowing that each person is going to have to sh shovel horseshit at some point in the process. Totally, and it's like, if you can, if you can find ways to engage the team in understanding why it matters, where we're going, and what the expectation is for how we get there, your teams can and will move mountains. Piles of horseshit will get removed every single day, magically, by hard work, determination, planning, what have you. The opposite is also true. A lot of organizations create their own piles of horseshit by avoiding conflict, right? Like by, by increasing dysfunction, by not having clear plans, by not creating conducive environments for their teams, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, you know, none of this, as they say, is rocket science or brain surgery, but too many people, too many organizations make things way more complex than they need to be. And I think going back to quote unquote basics is the secret sauce. So I'd simply say kind of in recap, as a leader, your goal is to create environments that are conducive for your teams to do their best work. To do so, we need to understand that the ladder of inference is at play 24-7, seven days a week, 365 days a year, in perpetuity, forever, right? Um, secondarily, that uh, foundation of trust is critical. 
we know what trust is when we have it and we know when we don't, but like now with the trust equation, we can understand and put some tangibility to trust being credibility, reliability, authenticity, and a perception of self-interest. You can agree or disagree with the parts and pieces, the components, but like this allows you to kind of go in and diagnose when and how trust was eroded and allows you to go in and fix it instead of being like, oh, I don't trust that person. It's like, no, I have a credibility issue with that guy, right? Or that person, or, you know, she is only in it for herself. So I have an issue with this perception of self-interest, whatever. Um, you know, the next one is the importance of the clarity of mission. Like sounds quite simple. People miss it all the time. And there's a lot of connective tissue, the ability to zoom out, the ability to see the current state and the future state and, and, and work backwards from there. So you've got teams making near-term decisions based on a long-term lens, as opposed to firing up the chainsaw and just removing logs. And then finally, this, this notion of, you know, in general, wherever possible, optimizing globally versus locally. And I want people to be clear. I want people to understand, like, there are times when it is your job to optimize locally. Like you should be creating the best team that you can, but it shouldn't be in spite of what's best for the organization. That's the key distinction there. Um, and so that's kind of just pulling it all together. I mean, each one of these areas is worthy of a, of a deeper discussion, but I think this sets the, 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 the groundwork for us to be able to then have a different discussion around, okay, that's great. Like I'm thinking differently. I now have these frameworks to operate from. Like, what does it look like for me to behave in different ways? And that's kind of, um, whether that's the next podcast or, or 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 just one in the future, but like this sets the stage for that to happen, and I'm I'm super excited to share some of that as well, and 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 we will do so in one of the upcoming podcasts. I know also Adam that we've been talking about what kind of the future of the uh, better, faster, further podcast series is going to look like, so maybe you can kind of share some of our current thinking. Yeah, you bet. And for everybody listening, we'll link to some of these um, some of these things that we talked about today. We'll link to them in the show notes, so you have a, a takeaway. Uh, to reference, you know, the conversation that you listened to today. So going forward, you know, it's it's great for for Regan and I or Regan, Louie and I to, to get on and talk, but it's, we believe that it may be uh, even more impactful for us to invite guests on the show. And so what we're doing now is is lining up some guests for for future podcasts that have lived these very things or are living these very things. Guess that some of them you may know of, some of them you may not. But we'll get a, a real firsthand account and a live discussion around some of these topics outside of just, you know, our internal conversation. And we think that will be very impactful. The other thing that we'd like to mention, everybody, is that if you have something that you would like to discuss either on the podcast live with us or you have a topic that you'd like us to, to double click on during the podcast, please reach out to us. And you can do so by emailing info at betterfasterfurther.com. And we will get back to you. We'll set up a time. Someone... Uh, from our team, we'll reach out and we'll set up a time and we'll talk about um, your your uh, your topic and, and we'll figure out the next best step. So and then the last ask we have for you guys and uh, is to like, subscribe, share the podcast, comment on the podcast, rate the podcast. You know, let us know that you're listening so we know what to do to get better. Yeah, I'd say just in closing, um, it's always nice to just kind of put the stuff out there. We're We've got um, some articles um, on medium.com and on our website to support some of these concepts. So feel free to take a look at those. And again, um, we don't quite know where this is going to go, but we're super excited to start to bring in um, some of our clients, some of our coaches, um, just to continue to have a dialogue and, and, and get engaging thought and perspectives out there. We would love any and all input and feedback. 
And, you know, uh, we do by design very little marketing. Um, 95% of the work that we get at Better, Faster, Further is purely word of mouth. And um, that is our marketing right there. And so good work begets um, amazing clients and, and really tight and strong referrals. So for all of you uh, out there that uh, may have somebody in your professional and personal life that you think would benefit from exposure to Better, Faster, Further, uh, by all means, please point them in our direction. Um, our website, uh, betterfasterfurther.com is a great resource. Uh, you can email uh, myself at regan at betterfasterfurther.com or adam at the same with adam at. Um, and just reach out. We're, we're, we're open to inputs, uh, questions or comments. We will continue to try to make the podcast just better and better and continue to bring in amazing um, people, but uh, are excited to share as much of the stuff of the world as we can. So uh, enjoy your day. Thanks for your time. Uh, go out there, do good work and um, make the world a better place. All right. Have a good one. Bye, everybody. Ciao.